Good morning, everybody. Great, great to see you all and those of you who are online as well. Whenever you're watching this morning or um, at another time on demand, uh, welcome. We are on our last week of our series called Dying Words on Second Peter. There's a sense we got a bonus message next week, which is on Jude, a small little letter that's very closely related to Second Peter. So um, in a sense, we, we, we have one more week uh, in this series. But in two weeks, we start on Genesis chapter one, and we're gonna stay in Genesis chapter one for the fall all the way up till Advent. And uh, in our daily life devotional, we're going to be doing Proverbs. And Proverbs is a great book. And sometimes if you haven't been in there for a while, it's a great one to get back into and just see how impacting it can be on our lives. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing is uh, if you are wanting to take a deep dive into Proverbs, one of the best ways you can do that is by actually teaching it. And so if you have that kind of desire and you're a pretty good writer, we could use some more Daily Life writers. And so if you'd be interested in finding out a little bit more about that, write Daily Life on your Connect card and we'll get in touch with you and tell you what that, what that entails. Okay, so today we're looking at chapter three. We're gonna go back to the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, so. Technically, we're at verse 14, but we're going to look at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. We skipped a couple of big ideas in there, or one major idea in there. I said that last week so that we could look at it this week as we bring everything to a close. And we're going to look at a couple of very important ideas in this passage today. Um, Last week, we looked at how we long, whether we know it or not, we long for what is going to happen, what God is going to do through the new creation. Uh, as we get relational wholeness, vocational wholeness, emotional, psychological wholeness. We long for the things of the new creation. Uh, but one of the things that, that happens before the new creation is a last judgment. And so that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. We're going to see how they're related to each other, why a last judgment is necessary, and why, in a sense, we long for a last judgment as well. And then Peter asks the question, and we'll go into this a little bit more deeply. He says, what kind of lives ought we to live in light of the second coming of Christ? And he answers that question, we'll look a little bit at that. So these are two really important topics that impact just about everything that we do in our daily lives because we're called to live in light of Christ's return. So please join me in prayer as... um, We pray for God to illuminate his word, for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word in our lives. And this this, uh, prayer is based on this passage that we're looking at today. So please join me. Heavenly Father, you reconcile us to you. And you make it possible for us to be at peace with you. Your son gave his life for our peace. By your spirit, you transform us so that we grow in peace with you and with each other and even within ourselves. We thank you and we praise you uh, for those realities. Help us to see our lives and circumstances through your perspective so that we live in greater peace and help your people be peacemakers wherever we go and wherever we have influence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we read the passage, just a little setup, chapter three, if you'll remember the first seven verses, Peter is speaking to scoffers, what he calls scoffers, people who say Jesus is not coming back. 
And then beginning in verse eight, he starts speaking to those who are in the community, who are not scoffers, who have faith in Christ, but are living with uh, just a lot of questions, like why the delay and why are we waiting? How long, you know, the, the prayer of the Psalms, how long, O Lord, because this world is filled with a lot of suffering. And so uh, Peter addresses that, and then he turns in the final verses to what difference does it make? How ought we to live in light of that? So follow along as a couple of five ochres read our passage. 18. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. All right, we're not going to spend any time on verse 16 where Peter talks about Paul, or 15 and 16, which are really interesting verses. We've addressed them when we were doing our Roman series. It's sometimes hard to understand Paul, yes. But the reality is for us, it's a little bit different than for them because we have a lot of Paul's writings which help us understand kind of the things that he talks about because he sometimes expands on them in other letters. We don't have that with Peter. So for us, it's kind of turned around. Peter, sometimes as we've gone through this and like even in this way he describes what the judgment, uh, it, it, it raises some interesting questions for us and we have trouble understanding him, uh, whereas they who had maybe one or two letters from Paul had difficulty understanding Paul sometimes. But it also says that scripture is not like easily understood. What we need to understand, we can understand, but there's always more growing and understanding and layers that we can understand as we spend time in the word. All right, so uh, he talks about the, the destruction of the planet uh, in verses before this, and he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, and that was the thing that I said last week, we're going to put aside and talk about this week. So the question is, are we living on a condemned planet? My sister-in-law is going to be moving here pretty soon from an apartment into a house in Bloomington. And she's, the house she's moving into is a condemned house. Now, this sounds terrible, but it's actually a pretty good deal for her. I'll explain in a few minutes. But are we living on a condemned planet? When Peter writes about the return of Christ, he talks about the judgment, which other passages also talk about in the New Testament. He speaks of it in terms of a destruction, like a burning of the present creation. And you may not realize it, but that is unusual in the Bible. Uh, it speaks of the, the, the world as being kind of like a condemned planet. And that is just not the way most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time, 
it's spoken of. It might surprise you, but in the Bible, it's unusual to describe the end of the world as we know it, as burning up or a destruction of the present material universe like Peter does in this passage. The closest other authors come to it in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is uh, when it speaks of replacement. But that's not usually. The more common description of the end is that there is going to be a renewal of the creation, a transformation of the old into the new. It's how Paul talked about it. It's how Jesus talked about it. Just a couple of examples of this are from Romans chapter 8. If I could have the next slide. It says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Okay, so the language is of creation being liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's a personification here uh, that Paul gives to the creation and, and speaks of it as groaning as it waits for its new life, its transformation. Jesus said this, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things. Again, so he's talking about his return and he's talking about everything being renewed. So the question is, does it matter? Does it matter whether it's gonna be a complete renewal? Does it matter whether it's gonna be a destruction? Um, Well, it does matter if you come to the conclusion that since we're living on a condemned planet, that we don't need to care for it. So my sister-in-law is gonna be moving into a condemned house, I said. And the reason is, uh, she was talking about looking for a new place because her rent is gonna go up significantly. And a couple from her church overheard her and they said, we've got a house that you can move into and we can make it very affordable. And so it's a house in Bloomington in a neighborhood where basically every house except for two houses have been torn down to build bigger, newer, better houses. I don't know if it's better, but bigger, newer (laughs) houses. And, And so this one is scheduled, not scheduled yet, but the plan is this one is going to be uh, torn down and a new house is going to be built. And so, but there'll be at least a two year warning. And she said the two year doesn't start when she moves in. The, the couple said that it doesn't. And so she's, in a sense, moving into a house that's going to be torn down. And the question is is she going to trash it because of that? You know, is, is she, because it's a condemned, you know, place in a sense, is she going to cra- uh, just trash it, you know, not clean, not fix things that are broken? Are the landlords going to do that? They're not going to do that. She's not going to do that. The landlords aren't going to do that because they want to help her out. They don't want to give her a miserable place to live. In fact, they're taking care of so many things like the uh, snow removal and the yard and all of that sort of thing. So here's the question. Whether the earth is going to be destroyed or whether it's going to be transformed, or whether it's some kind of combination, whether Peter is talking metaphorically here, which he might be, but there's some issues with understanding it that way, or if destruction is part of it, whatever it is, it's still, right now, God's earth. It's his creation. It's broken, but it's still his creation. We're called to be stewards of it. We're gonna spend probably a few weeks on just that idea. Um, well, not just stewards of this earth, but what, our, what stewardship means from Genesis chapter 1, because we're made in the image of God. 
And so we'll, we'll be talking about a, a stewardship of the earth as being part of what we do, stewardship of our relationships, all that sort of thing. So we are still stewards of the earth. So what's important in this? Well, the important thing is to recognize that God values material things and material existence. So we should too. Uh, the, whatever is going to be happening to the, this earth and the transformation and all of that that's going to be happening is not an excuse to neglect material existence, our material existence, our relational material existence, our world, our things, all of that sort of thing belong to God, and we're supposed to steward them. Number two, before the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be a judgment. So when Peter's talking about destruction, the thing that he's talking about, the thing that he's alluding to is a judgment that's going to be happening. And a final judgment is necessary for all the blessings of the new creation to even be possible. There needs to be a judgment. So I want to show you a short video that makes the case, and it makes it in a very condensed fashion. And I apologize to those of you who um, can't hear as well because it, there was no subtitles for this one, and it moves really, really fast. So you can go back and watch it at another time. Uh, but uh, this video is an introduction to a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet. In a very short video as he's introducing his book, he covers this whole idea of why there needs to be some kind of judgment before there can be truly what God has called for in the new creation. So let's watch the video. Many of us fear hell is a skeleton in God's closet, an underground torture chamber that looks like this. No way. <laughs> well, that's not quite right. Okay, well you probably have this picture that right now I live here on earth. And one day I'll die and God will either send me up to heaven or down to hell. The problem is this isn't how the Bible actually talks about it. In the Bible, the story goes like this. Heaven and earth are created as good by God. However, when we rebel, they're then torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. But God is good, and he's on this mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring back together what hell has torn apart. Jesus' word for hell is Gehenna. It's a valley outside the city of Jerusalem, and it was a place known for child sacrifice. People would go outside the city, light the flames, and murder their children in this really distorted religious practice. And it's interesting to note, the flames of Gehenna were lit by human hands, and the people killing their kids were going back into the city to sleep at night. So for the prophets, Gehenna became the symbol for idolatry and injustice, and what's wrong in Jerusalem and in the world as a whole. But the hope of the prophets was that God was going to return one day as the good king to redeem Jerusalem and kick out all the rebellious, destructive powers outside his city. The reason hell's destructive power is kicked outside the city is because it stands opposed to the good and redemptive things God wants to do inside the city. So we see that hell's location is not underground, it's outside the city. And its purpose is not torture, it's protection. But is it a chamber? Now, the irony is that we want hell, we want life without God, and we choose destructive things all the time that are tearing our world apart. Take sex trafficking, for example. Most of us want that out of God's world. I spent a summer overseas working against it and was disgusted by the exploitation of kids for sex. But as I read my Bible, I realized Jesus wants sex trafficking out of his world too, only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. I want to prune back the problem with sex trafficking. Jesus wants to dig out the root, the root of things like pride, lust, rage, and greed, things we all struggle with. Luckily, Jesus' question for us is not, are you good enough to get into my city? His question is, rather, will you let me heal you? 
God wants to forgive. Hell's not locked from the outside. It's locked from the inside if we refuse to be healed. So, lots of people think of hell as a skeleton God's hiding, something that makes him look vindictive and vengeful, but I've actually found it to be one of God's greatest acts of mercy. I explain more on why in my book, along with looking at judgment and holy war. The book is called The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, The Hope of Holy War. Available now. So one of the main points that he makes in that book and in that video is that final judgment is necessary for all the blessings of the new creation to be possible. You see that hand coming out of the city. And so as we look at the end of the Bible, the new creation, we know that there is going to be a new Jerusalem, a new city where God is going to dwell, and that's where we're going to live. And so the question is, and I think it's a, it's a great question is, do you want in the new creation, do I want there to be sex trafficking? Do I want in the new creation for there to be war? Do I want the same brokenness of relationships that I'm experiencing now? Do I want that in the new creation? Uh, we don't. We, we don't want it. In verse 13, it says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, which is described as we looked at last week as a place of wholeness. It's a place where righteousness dwells. So unrighteousness can't be in the new creation because it'll tear everything down just like it tore everything down before. And so in, in a sense, um, as he says, you know, how do, we, how do we escape judgment in there? He says, Jesus says, God says, can I heal you? And that healing is one of the metaphors that's used in Scripture uh, for what we need uh, comes uh, because of God's judgment. God is a just God. He's not going to look the other way at all the evil that we have committed, all the sins that we commit, but also how those sins impact other people and how then it impacts other people. And so God doesn't look the other way. Instead, he absorbs the judgment on himself. So Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. And there he absorbs our penalty. Our sins go to him on the cross. We receive his righteousness. We receive even his holiness becomes. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. So we receive that now by not doing this to God. We receive that now by receiving by faith, the Bible tells us. Receive what Jesus has done by faith. We put our faith in that because it's, it's grace. It's, it's undeserved. It's not anything that we can gain for ourselves. It's something that, that God offers us and then we have to receive it. Otherwise, we're, like he said, we're locking the door um, on this side of the hell that we've created and the hell that we have for eternity. We're locking the door to God, not God locking the door to us, although there is a certain locking of the door that happens as well. All right, so that's kind of a foundation really important to understand as we look at the next subject, because the next subject is to live a holy life. That's what he says there. Peter asked the question, look at verse 11, like the second, the last half of that verse, where he says, you ought to live Oh, no, he asked the question. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And then he answers it. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So as you live in light of the end, live holy and godly lives. And then he expands on it in verse 14. So, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, again, that forward-looking, that longing, 
make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. All right, so all these terms, you know, big terms just keep raising the bar, it seems, on how it is that we can be ready for the second coming or live in light of that. Um, and, and, I mean, it's terms like be holy, godly, spotless, live a spotless life, a blameless life. And these terms are rich. These are rich terms where we could probably do a mini-series on each one of those. Uh, but we're, but we're going to focus here on the word holy because it's the most comprehensive one. It is, when applied to God, uh, maybe the most comprehensive term that's used being applied to God. And it's a hard word to, to summarize. It's a hard word to even define because it is so comprehensive. But I'll give you one definition that I think hits it pretty well. Um, I don't think I could do better. But Jen Wilkins, she says, holiness can be described as the sum of all moral excellence. Think of God. It's the sum of all moral excellence. It carries the ideas of being set apart, sacred, separate, of possessing utter purity of character. Now, if you look at that description and you say, that's what he's calling us to, and you feel overwhelmed by it, in a real sense, you, you ought to. <laughs> we ought to feel overwhelmed by that. But not to the overwhelmed to the point where we are overwhelmed and we, we don't even live in that kind of way. In some ways, uh, we, we make it worse than it is because we don't understand what we're really being called to and how we are called to this. How do we live this kind of life? We make, it, we make it much more difficult than it actually could ever be, at least in our heads. So um, most of you might remember uh, the, the, the bracelets the, that were pretty hot quite a few years ago, the WWJD. What does this stand for? What would Jesus do? All right. And this is, it's, it's a fine idea. I don't, I'm not knocking the bracelet or anything like that, but the way that sometimes we understand what would Jesus do can actually be not very helpful, and it can be debilitating when it comes to our faith. It can come to the position where we think, now that I've received Christ by his grace and been made whole by him and been made right with him, uh, now it's up to me to figure out what would Jesus do and to just keep trying harder and harder to do what Jesus would do. Now, that's not, it's not all wrong, but it's, it's, fundamentally wrong in some, some really basic ways. Uh, for one thing, we're not Jesus. And the reality is that while he was truly human, and we learned a lot about what humanity is supposed to look like, he was also truly God. And so we have to remember, he was, he was without sin. Uh, not only that, he was a traveling prophet and rabbi. So we, there's, all, there's a whole swath of Jesus' life that we know nothing about. How he lived as an adult. How he would have lived if he had a life that was at least somewhat similar to ours, like he had to go to work every day and make a living and all that kind of stuff. So what would Jesus do uh, is a hard question to answer because we never see Jesus like working for really anybody. He makes his living by donations and staying in people's homes and all of that in the portion of his life that we, we see. We don't, he doesn't work for a corporation. He doesn't work for the government. He doesn't work for the city. He doesn't work for a nonprofit. 
doesn't work for a small business. Um, we don't know what, we, we don't get to see anything, you know, we don't get to see what Jesus would do if he was a suburban mom or dad with kids. Jesus doesn't have a large salary. How would, you know, we don't get to see Jesus managing a large salary or voting. They didn't vote back then on anything. And so if you were to say, what would Jesus do? By looking at the part of Jesus' life that we have, it would almost seem like we need to disengage. Like when he told his disciples, come follow me. Leave everything behind. Why? Because they had to leave everything behind. They couldn't go home at night. They're traveling. He's teaching from place to place. He's a traveling teacher. And so, you know, we, there's so much we don't know about this. So what does it mean to live a holy life? Um, I'm going to give you an answer that's not a comprehensive answer, but I want to talk about some aspects of living a holy life. So the first thing about living a holy life is found in verse 18. If you'll look at verse 18, where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge uh, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a big part of it has to do with growing in grace and growing in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that verse serves as a bookend in Second Peter. And so if you get kind of overwhelmed by some of the demands and some of the things that Peter says, you gotta remember he starts with grace and he ends with grace. And so in Verse three, at the beginning, he says, his divine power, he he establishes this right at the beginning. He says, it's by his divine power that he has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. All of the Christian life is lived by grace and in grace, and that's why we grow in grace. Uh, and, And we learn more and more how to live in that grace. So it's not a life of just trying harder. There is, we'll talk about the effort here in a few moments, but it's not just a life of trying harder and harder and harder because you try harder and harder and harder, you're just, you're gonna fail and you're gonna fail and you're gonna fail and you're gonna fail. So if your mantra is, I gotta do everything that Jesus did and I've gotta do it like I've gotta do it or I, you know, God help me do it and that's what's driving your life very different than a life of growing in God's grace, because we need God's grace every step of the way of our lives. Um, to better understand this, it helps to look at a couple of, of terms that the New Testament uses and a couple of terms that uh, theologians use. So, yeah, the next screen. So, um, don't, normally, don't normally do this, but I just want to show you that the, the term for Holy in scripture is the term hagios, that's the, the Greek term behind it in the New Testament. And it means a couple of things. It can mean, actually, they're the same thing, holy or sanctified. So in English, we have two words to represent where they have one word, all right? So that's, that's important because, um, because of the terms that are used theologically to describe this. And then hagiazo means to make holy, or to sanctify, to make holy, or to sanctify. So theologians use some terms to describe this phenomenon where we are made right in Christ, 
We're actually made holy. We're called holy ones in the New Testament. We're saints. That's what saints means. It means holy ones. It's this term. And all Christians are saints. And so, but we don't act like saints a lot of the time. So how do they, how do they talk about it? One of the ways that theologians talk about it, they talk about definitive sanctification. So sanctified, sanctified, definitive being made holy. We are sanctified. We are made holy by God. And so another way they talk about it, theologians talk about it, is positional sanctification. Positional. We're, we're there by God's grace. It's that, that whole thing we are, before God, we are right because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. Our sins went to Jesus on the cross. And then there's progressive sanctification. We grow in holiness. We grow in holiness. Uh, so when Peter calls us to live holy lives, or even in 1 Peter, he says, be holy because the Lord is holy, which even feels like more pressure. He's talking about progressive sanctification that can happen only because he has made us holy. So we've been made holy, we can grow into what we are. That's the foundation. It's a huge, and a huge part of that process, which I can't go into now, but a huge part of that process is leaning more into God's grace. It's living in that grace. It's recognizing that grace that we have every day in our lives. So it's not a, just a, it's a thank you, Lord, that I live in your grace. So what does it mean to be, to live a holy life? It means to grow in grace. It means to grow in grace. Secondly, ask W-W-J-D-I-H-W-I-M-S and learn to act on it. Let's go to the next point. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Anybody know what that, that is? There you go. What would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? Okay, so uh, that's the whole idea. So the important thing to understand about this um, is that it is, uh, this is way better than what would Jesus do because my life is so different from his. What would he do if he were in my shoes? And then I look at his life and I look at his teaching and I apply that to the life that I'm living, the going to work, the parenting, the friendships, the, all those aspects of my life, stewarding uh, my time, all those kinds of things. And, and so I look at through the lens of his teaching. But even more importantly, I look at Jesus' life holistically. I don't just look at what he said to do. Because what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes includes imitating Jesus' practices, the way that he lived his life. Practices like prayer and community with others and meditating on the word of God and solitude and other spiritual disciplines that you see him living throughout his life. These practices that, uh, that he, he lived because all the spiritual disciplines are relational practices. They help us to live. They train us. But at the same time, they are the living out of a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. They're relational at their core, every single one of them. So it's not about simply, I got to make a decision. What would Jesus do if he was in my shoes? I got to make that decision right here. No, no, it's more than that. It has to do with, um, with training, with transformation, with cooperating with the means that God gives me to grow in my faith. So that's a, 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 more, a, a more balanced, holistic way of looking at what would Jesus do, and it's what 
I think a lot of people intend when they say WWJD, but it's good. Memorize that by next week. I'll test you. Um, number three, how do we live holy lives? Well, we do it by being ready and prepared for a messy journey. And there's a couple of words that are really important. Journey and mess. And it is a journey. We don't arrive until the new creation. It's really clear in the Bible. We don't arrive until the new creation. And it's not this kind of thing. It's messy. It's not this kind of thing like a, a chart, you know, a straight line going up like every day. I'm just getting more and more, you know. It's, it's ugly. It's messy. It has a lot of failures. It has a lot of ups and downs and sometimes going backwards. It's a messy journey. And God is basically what he's doing is he's calling us to strive to be what we are. And the Bible uses that kind of language constantly. That's, that's the kind of striving effort that he's called us to. It's this messy journey of trying to bring in the practices of Jesus, cooperating with God, leaning into grace because we fail and, and we even see as we grow in God's grace, we even see the depths of failure that we didn't even see before we fully understood God's grace. And so it's layers and layers of sins underneath sins that drive our lives. And so the Bible uses words like fighting for this, battling, not, not battling with you know, each other or with the world. It's this battle that we're in for transformation that God wants to bring to us and a lot of other terms that are like that. And it's full of setbacks, and it's really, really messy. What does it mean to live a holy life? Number four, pursue unspectacular gains. Now, this can go in two different ways, but I'm using it a very specific way. Pursue gains in the things that are unspectacular. Pursue gains in the things that are unspectacular in our lives. So, there's an article that I've put into your outline that you can look up online by David Paulison, the late David Paulison, and he wrote an article several years ago called An Open Letter to Those Frustrated by Their Progress in Sanctification, that growing in holiness. In his letter, he writes about what constitutes spiritual growth and holiness, and he says, most of it is very unspectacular. And he does it by looking in the article at the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes show us what life in the kingdom looks like. And when we're living in light of God's kingdom that is coming, Jesus' kingdom that is coming, what that looks like. And it's very unspectacular things. <clears throat> it's being poor in spirit, recognizing our need for, for God and for grace. It's mourning with those who mourn. It's meekness. It's hungering for righteousness. So it has to do with, with really the tough stuff, which is hard attitudes. Hard attitudes and, trace, and, and traits, like the ones described in the Beatitudes, that's where we can detect genuine spiritual growth. And it is extremely unspectacular. And not only is it unspectacular, a lot of those traits are, not, are, are really demeaned in just about every culture. There's hardly a culture on earth. I don't know of one that says one of our goals should be to be meek. Um, 
and, and many of the, not all the Beatitudes are unspectacular, but almost all of them, all of them are. But that's where we're going to detect growth is in those hard attitudes, traits, where God wants to grow us that really provide a foundation for what comes out of our lives. So what does it mean to live a holy life? It means to grow in grace. It means doing what Jesus would do if he were in my shoes, including the practices that he would do. It means being prepared for a messy journey. It means pursuing gains and unspectacular things like the Beatitudes. And fifth, last, it means to align our lives with what we know about the new creation. Align our lives with what we know about the new creation. Ultimately, that's what holiness is about. Holy and godly lives are lives that are increasingly, sometimes going backwards, yes, but we're, we're seeking to increasingly live in line with the way that God has intended life to be lived. The new creation um, is a creation that is aligned with what God intended us to be in the first place. We did some dreaming last week. We talked about why should we long for the new creation? It seems so way out there. Why should we long for it? And we talked about the tastes that we have now of it, the previews of it that can build our longing when we see them for what they are. And so relational wholeness, when we experience relational wholeness with people, um, emotional psychological wholeness, vocational wholeness, those times when we're working on something and it's really satisfying and it's not toil, it's, it's joy, the thing that we're working on. We talked about all those things. So now we step back and we say, what does it mean to live a holy life? It means to align my life with where this is all going. And so to seek that relational wholeness with others and, and to seek that emotional peace and psychological peace with God that surpasses all understanding, and, and to seek that vocational wholeness by doing our work as unto God and recognizing that, that he's watching and he cares and he's my ultimate boss. It's all those kinds of things. It's aligning my life. What does it mean to live a holy life on the ground? It means aligning my life with what that new creation is going to be. And you and I crave this. We crave this. Rightly understood, our deepest longings are for holiness. Okay, so there's a, there's a battle going on. There is, a, there is a deep longing in us to be our own gods and to run our own, our, our own world and to do what we want to do and to define what's right and wrong our way that oftentimes just aligns with what everybody is telling us is right and wrong, not because we've come to that conviction ourselves. Instead of listening to God, we have that longing, but we have an even deeper longing. We have this deep longing to, for holiness, for things, for this liberation that from that part of us that drags us down into selfishness and self-destructive ways of life, um, like allowing our lusts and our hopelessness and our fear and our rage and things like that to dominate our lives. It's a great, it's a great vision that Peter gives us. And it's a difficult and messy journey. And it's what we're about week in and week out, right? As we gather together, and then as we go and we continue responding to God's word, it's, it's all about that. And so let's begin our time of response now. 
by taking out the communion elements. We start with the top, with the bread. And again, we're reminded of so many of the themes that run through here. Uh, because we're reminded, again, as Jesus said, this, this is my body. When he said, this is my body broken for you, he was talking about why it is that we will survive judgment. That's part of what he's talking about. Because it's his body given for us means he went to the cross. He took our penalty on himself. We received that. received that by faith. And we remember his body broken for us. Likewise, his blood. By his blood, we have our sins forgiven. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a holy God. Because you are a holy God, we can trust you. You're not capricious. There is no evil in you. You keep your promises. You keep your word. Because you're a holy God. You are pure. You are right. Father, help us to live in light of your goodness and with you. Help us to see just what a beautiful thing that is that we have been invited into a relationship with you in spite of the fact that we don't belong with you. But we have fellowship with you. We are your children. We're loved by you. We have hope for the future. We have hope. That future hope impacts our present struggles. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.